Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Oh, today's episode is a good one. We are going to continue the Wild West saga that I started almost at the beginning of my run here at Fascinating Nouns. Today we are going to get into the history of railroads, specifically the Transcontinental Railroad. This is actually really exciting stuff, very important to our history, and I've got an incredible expert to talk with me about this, and that is none other than Phil Sexton, who was previously the key cultural interpreter for the California State Railroad Museum, who now currently works with the California State Park System. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here, Phil. You know, it's funny because I've, I've got this strange, like, recent obsession with the Wild West. I can't explain it. But I remember hearing that there were four innovations that really were important to settling the West. And that is, uh, first of all, the telegraph, uh, which I have a show in the works about that. Uh, barbed wire, I've done a show on that. The Winchester rifle, I did a show on the Winchester house. And, of course, railroads, which is the current thing that we're going to talk about. The history of the railroads... Uh, why do you think these were so important to history? Why were these one of the innovations that helped settle the West? Well, as I get there, I'm gonna also going to tell you that the telegraph and the railroad literally go hand in hand. Hmm. The stringing of that, of that cross-country telegraph line proceeded very closely just before the building of the railroad, and the railroad had special lines built as they built track hmm. so that they could relay information about the building of the railroad instantly back to their head offices to help them with logistics and payrolls and all sorts of things. Oh, wow, that makes so sense. they are very, very closely intertwined. And on May 10th, 1869, when the rails were joined at Promontory, Utah, that was signaled across the country and around the world via telegraph. Hmm. That was the first instantaneous news event in the history of the world. Wow. It was the internet of its day. Wow. So so the the Transcontinental Railroad, that was the first time where all over the world people knew it when it happened. Yes, and, and for such a momentous event. Uh, and another just a little bit of trivia thing is that was May 10th, 1869. In early July, and I'm sorry I don't remember the exact date, of 1969, man landed on the moon. They are separated mm. by 100 years and two months. Oh, wow. That is amazing. I love that. That's great. I mean, because they both represent the next evolution of travel, for, of human travel. And they both have this worldwide audience fervently engaged in what they're doing moment oh. by moment. Yeah, yeah. The, the construction of the railroad was a huge news event during its entire lifespan. Uh, and, and, of course, it wasn't on television, as, as you know we would do today or on the Internet, but places like Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper and Harper's Weekly and the New York Sun and Chicago Papers and papers literally around the world had breathless stories every week chronicling the adventures of what happened in building this railroad, at least in part because many people thought it was impossible. To, to do it completely as a task. It had never been done on such a scale. And the people who built the Central Pacific coming eastward from here in Sacramento were merchants and haberdashers and politicians. 
they knew nothing about building a railroad. Mm-hmm. And the, instead, they built a railroad over one of the highest mountain ranges in one of the snowiest areas in North America. Right. Across an incredible desert that claimed untold lives just a few years before that during the immigrant migration. Right, right, yeah. And yeah. so it was not really possible to do. And they they just didn't know that they couldn't do it, so they went and did it anyway. Which is how all impossible tasks get completed. That's that's really one of those truths of life, I think, that, that's very prescient. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And in, in this was such... Uh, I, mean, I love I love all the history behind this. I love the um, the kind of the characters that came out of the railroad building, and it's funny. Uh, just really quickly at the top, I, I love the television show Hell on Wheels, and I loved it because it was the only show that really talked about the railroads. And in a lot of ways, I kind of learned some of the nuances about the characters involved and the companies involved, and just how big. I mean, there were so many like schemes that happened, you know, and how many, how much money was made and lost because the government really doubled down on doing this. Uh, they really wanted this done. So we're gonna we're gonna end with the. I think the good ending point is the the, the golden spike at the uh, transcontinental railroad. But let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about the beginning of railroads. And I believe um, I'm just gonna say this. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the first railroad was the Baltimore and Ohio, aka the B and O railroad, which is um, one of the four that's on a monopoly board. How that's, am I doing? That's regarded as the first railroad in the United States, but they were actually invented in Great Britain. Oh right, right. I, uh, we'll we'll keep the scope to the United States because I think railroads went back even way before England, but they were perfected. In yeah, the, the modern the B and O was the first American railroad, and, right. and they take great pride in that. So, what was the importance of? Um, let me take it just a step back really quickly. What was the importance of the steam locomotive? Why was that so important? Well, steam was the alternative to powering any sort of equipment other than wind or being pulled by an animal. Okay. When when you think about the uh, railroads came into existence in the world in in the 1830s. Prior to that, you moved either on foot, on the back of an animal, being pulled by an animal, or on something floating on water being pushed by air. Right. So their major competitors were like steamboats at the time. Yes. Essentially, right? Okay. Yes, except that a steamboat is limited only to being where water is. <laughs> right. If you right, lay rails, yeah. you can go anywhere that right. you can make a 2% grade. Right. Okay. And that's really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. You were moving at the same speed in 1830 that you had been in biblical times. Right. Right. Okay. That When you really say that, I, I just had like a moment there. That's So what you're basically saying is the technology for human movement hadn't really evolved on any kind of major level until 1830s. It's not a ramp. It's a very sudden wall that they surmount. <laughs> Suddenly you're going right. from walking at two miles an hour yeah. or 10 miles an hour on a horse, maybe 17 to 20 at a gallop for a short time, yeah. to going 25, 35 miles an hour as long as you've got water and fuel right. in that thing. And you can go forever. And it's hard for us to understand how remarkable that is because we've grown up in the 21st century or the 20th century yeah. in being in constant motion. But Prior to the railroads, you basically lived and died not more than 20 or 25 miles an hour from where you were born. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that is major because I didn't think about that. But that answers that question perfectly, why the steam locomotive was so important, because it allowed you to move further. It also does this really important kind of social thing. And, And this is a little arcane, but hey, what the heck. When our country was established... Thomas Jefferson first wrote the Articles of Confederation. Actually, he didn't write it, but he favored the Articles of Confederation, which postulated that the United States was a loosely confederated group of independent states. 
emphasis on the independent. They were all kind of self-contained. There was a common postal service. There was a mm. common military, sort of a common currency, but they were really independent. And Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, favored what was called Hamiltonian democracy, of a tight confederation with interdependence and cross-traffic and people really woven together. The railroad made that possible. And mm-hmm. the, the way it did was being able to haul people and large things quickly and, and, and cheaply. Right. So in, in, the, in the way it works for California, here's California with all of its gold in 1849 and 1850 and the placer deposits, the stuff where you have the famous miner with his pan and his pick and right. shovel. <laughs> yeah. All of that stuff yeah. gets played out within <laughs> a couple of years. And then uh-huh. the next stage is that people have to reroute rivers so they can dry up gravel beds and start sluicing the gold out of that. And that pretty much pans out as well, no pun intended. Right. Then they started hard rock mining, which is really hard work. Yeah. The big machinery that lets you crush ore and it lets you dig big holes and stuff is all made in the East because that's where the iron deposits are and that's where the foundries are. Mm-hmm. But prior to the railroad, all of that stuff had to come around the tip of South America on sailing ships. Oh, right. So you're talking a four to six month journey, incredible shipping costs, a real question mark as to whether the ship will arrive or founder in the in the ocean never to be found again. Right. And, you know, we're obviously talking pre-Panama Canal. So what you're talking about the tip of South America, you mean all the way down the north and you know, that whole entire The south continent. end, yes. I mean, it's north and South America, the whole continent. And, but in fairness, there was actually a minor railroad in Panama, which was part of Nicaragua at the time, called the Panama Railroad. Mm-hmm. And you could, you could take your stuff on a ship to uh, uh, oh, the port there. Right. Unload it, take it on that little railroad across, and wait for another ship to come get it. Right, right. Which is actually, I mean, it's like piggybacking off of other ships going around, but that saves you a lot of time. It's one continent; you don't have to sail around. If if there's if there's ships there, if the trade winds are working for you, right, right. There's yeah, a yeah. whole bunch of ifs. Sure, sure, sure. But then one of the, and, and so one of the great things about building the railroad for California was it allowed you to bring out things that helped you mine more gold, which was really important to the Union. Mm-hmm. Since the Civil War was financed primarily by California's gold and Nevada silver. Right. Big deal. Yeah, yeah. But also, it suddenly allowed this miraculous, unknown-to-anywhere-else farmland in California, the Central Valley that has a 12-month growing season, to to Mm. suddenly be planted because suddenly you had markets to ship produce to. Right. And suddenly, if you were in Connecticut or Massachusetts or places where winter is sub-zero and the ground is frozen, and all you're eating is crackers and beans and canned fruit from last summer... Imagine getting fresh vegetables and fresh fruit at your store, and suddenly right. your whole life is a lot better. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're also getting vitamins. You're getting a reminder that the world is, is going to thaw it eventually. <laughs> and, and California has this amazing economic boom because of this, and it, uh-huh. and it still influences us today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. Cal- I mean, the whole everything about California. There's a lot of amazing history in California, and I want to g- just make an, a point on the Nevada silver and California gold because I want to bring that up later on. Uh, and before we move on from that, I want to talk about the. There is a railroad, the first permanent horse-drawn railroad in the U.S. I believe it's Leaper Railroad. Is that how you say that? That's that's how I understand it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. The first permanent. I, I when I read that, I didn't realize that railroads were first. Um, horse-drawn, but I guess it makes perfect sense or whatever animal you are using. Well, if, if you want to, you know, be a lumper and, and and put everything together, there is a, what I believe to be kind of a myth, but it's rather pervasive, that, that railroad gauge, which is five feet or four mm-hmm. foot, eight and a half inches wide, is based on the wheel span of Roman chariots. Hmm. Okay. And the, the, 
and and so you, if you think of Roman chariots, you sort of think of being pulled by a horse and being right. in a track. That's so exactly you could right. sort of think of that. But I don't think that that actually happened that way for a couple of reasons. One is that there was no such thing as a chariot factory, so there was no standardization right. of, of gauge <laughs> and chariots. Right. But secondly, the railroad trains were developed in England by a man named Stevenson. Romans were in the British Isles, but there were no chariots from Rome in the British Isles. Okay. And what they see in, in Stevenson's hometown are road surfaces that have parallel ruts in them from the passage of many wagons over many, many years. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a track because the wheels would get stuck in those ruts. And you've probably been on this on a bicycle mm-hmm. or something as well. Right. Um, so some people think that that's the development of railroads. And that may have influenced how Stevens, Stevenson thought about it. But it wasn't a great leap to say, you know, if I put this here and pull this here, it's flat, it's easy to roll, and now I just need something to move it with. So someone pulled it with a horse, other people pushed them by hand, and then somebody went, you know, there's this steam engine. Well, then there's also, there's a a fourth option here, which is one of those goofy things you would see in like the uh, silent films where it's two people basically on a seesaw, and they go up and down with it, and they manually power themselves down the railroad. Sure, and we we know those today as hand cars. We've all seen them in movies. Hand cars. And at the railroad museum here in Sacramento, we actually have hand cars. Oh, that's awesome. We put kids on them, and we used to host the hand car races. Oh, that's great. I love that. I think they're hosted in Nevada now at the Nevada State Railroad Museum. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Okay, so let's get into the railroads, um, this the competition for the Transcontinental Railroad because this is really exciting. Um, going back to my Hell on Wheels, you worked on Hell on Wheels. You were a consultant on I, that. I was a consultant on the last two seasons. So yeah. you're going to be the perfect guy to talk to because I want to <laughs> know if some of these characters were true or not. Um, really quickly, was Cullen Bohannon, was he based on any historical figure? No. he Cullen, he's he's really fascinating. The character is. And, and the actor is a very nice man. Yeah. But Cullen represents every man. He saw far more than any one human could see because he he worked on both the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific. He was magically there for every amazing event. Right, yeah. He not only chiseled bare rock out of tunnels, but he also met with President Lincoln. Right, he was yeah. offered a commission in the Union Army. Yeah. And Grant, by a, the way. And Grant. Yeah. He was a stockholder in the Central Pacific Railroad. <laughs> yeah. So clearly he's not any one person, sure. but he is the the viewer's eyes. Uh-huh. And and I, I, I just have to tell you that when the, when the show was first on, you know, we all knew about it when I worked at the Railroad Museum, I watched the first couple of eth- episodes and went, nah, I don't think so. Really? No. It's not for me. It wasn't until I met the producers a few years later and I started looking at it through different eyes that I went, you know, this is really valuable. And and I actually did a session on this at a a professional workshop that I go to every year. It is clearly fiction. And my job as an interpreter, which is my profession, is to be accurate and truthful and give proper context. And so I talked about this to the to my professional group, and Hell on Wheels is is incredibly fictional and, and in some ways really unrealistic, especially with Cullen Bohannon doing all of these these things. But it tells great truths. And mm-hmm. you and you got you really got me when you mentioned that the, you talked about the nuance of the railroad. There are five seasons of Hell on Wheels, and it was something like 42 hours of content. Mm-hmm. Compare that to some really well-known films like Union Pacific, directed mm-hmm. by Cecil B. DeMille in 1939. It's about 72 minutes. Mm-hmm. There is a 22-minute section in How the West Was Won, directed by George Marshall, about building the railroad in a buffalo stampede. Right. And there's a couple more, Kansas Pacific and uh, the Iron Horse in 1924, directed by John Ford. None of those run long enough to really explore this. But mm-hmm. in a place like Helen Wheels, you can look at their lifestyles. You can look at and see the butcher butchering chickens in the background of scenes. Right. You can explore how the how the prostitutes and the game 
rooms followed them, which is the whole point of what a hell on wheels town is. And they really got into a lot of detail. And even though it was fiction, they were really respectful to lifestyles and to culture. Mm -hmm. And I, and I was really impressed by that, but also my job was to supply them with ideas and content, not so much ideas, but to answer their questions. Mm -hmm. So when I analyzed this for the session I did, I started looking very closely at the things and they took actual speeches and actual events and they transposed them to make them work for their world more dramatically. So for instance, after the rails were joined in Promontory, all the bigwigs had left and there was a man named James Stevens and he was the director of rolling stock boxcars for the Central Pacific Railroad. And he gave a speech to the hoi polloi, and he said, little do you know what you have done. This day you have changed the course of commerce and travel for the entire world. And he goes on for about 125 words, and it's a beautiful, passionate speech that someone recorded. In the show, they gave that to the Thomas Durant character, and they put it in terms of his testimony to Congress, and he delivers right, it in yeah. a very... A very aggressive and forthright manner. And he says, he literally says this speech, and it's incredibly effective. It's not truthful, right? but it's incredibly effective, and I think it actually <laughs> yeah. gives us the spirit of that in a very clean and, and, and really great way. So I grew up to, I, I grew to really, really respect this show, and I have a lot of regard for how they how they handled those things. It was just brilliant. Well, I, tell you, I can tell you, you are a rare breed because most historians or interpreters or, or experts in a certain field, when someone's doing a television show, they don't understand that it is entertainment and that they, they, forget, they lose the translation between historical fact and entertainment. Um, and everything that you just mentioned impressively articulates that very transition. It doesn't have to be word for word, scene for scene of history. It just has to give the nuances. It has to give um, the important overall themes. Um, you nailed it right there. I'm very impressed. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. But, but therein lies the interesting thing because it is hard in my profession to want to encourage people to wander away from the absolute truth. But Truth is a slippery devil. Absolutely. Truth is not the same as facts. Right, right. And yeah, yeah. and plus, and I, you know, we we talked about this when when you had called me to to set up the 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 interview. I actually worked in television before I came into this profession, and I mm. have an, a great appreciation for storytelling. I know the difference between fact and fiction. Right. And I also know that in the business of commercial television, although art is very important and really wonderful, what pays the bills are ratings. Right. And so they have to make something that is interesting enough for people right. to watch right. to keep the show on the air to tell the story. And that may not be the absolute fact. Right. There's all, by, by the way, there's also a really cool movie about this from about 1988 called Sweet Liberty, directed by Alan Alda. Hmm. In the movie, he's a history professor who has sold his book about a Revolutionary War battle to a film company. And the film explores his experience when the film company comes to town and, and in his view, makes a wreck of everything he holds dear. Oh, I love that. That's great. A That's... Really interesting film. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you talk about how it doesn't have to be history to be entertaining or be f completely factual. However, when it comes to this story, a lot of the truth is incredibly interesting. I mean, the, Thomas, the, the real Thomas Durant uh, is kind of amazing because he is a shyster. He was always, like, scheming. He's almost like a vaudevillian villain in a way, you know? That's, that's one of the areas on the show that I was actually a little disappointed in is they don't make 
the character of Durant as evil as he actually was. <laughs> right, and he's pretty evil on the show. He's he's pretty evil on the show, but yeah. he, in, in, on the show he's a little bit of Snidely Whiplash and a little bit cartoony. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. I, again, I don't mean any disrespect, <laughs> John and Mr. Meany. You guys did a wonderful job. Listeners of the show, this. by the way. Yes. They do listen to the show. Um, I, I really venerate that. But when we had some discussions about really getting into the perfidy of Thomas Durant, they went, you know... Basically, nobody would ever believe it. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> but, crazy. But also, in dramatic terms, in the show, Mr. Durant is always on the line. He's part of the central action. Yeah. In reality, he was never out there. He was back in New York doing oh. financial shenanigans. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and right, Enron right. and all of this other stuff has nothing right. on what Thomas Durant and some of these other people actually did financially. <laughs> and one of the reasons we have financial laws is because of shenanigans like he did. Right. But but he is such an interesting character. He yeah. is just a fascinating scoundrel. I would have been really upset with him had I lived during those days. <laughs> I had all sorts of moral outrage. But looking at it from 150 years ago, I go, wow, that's really cool. Because right. <laughs> he pulled a lot of strange stuff off. Um, so he was the, uh, I don't really, because he was like the vice president of the Union Pacific, right? Yes, and he had he had different titles because at one point they actually threw him off the board and they tried to get him out of the company and he wormed his way back in. He was just that dogged determination. Right. And, and his goal was never to build a railroad. It was to extract money out of the yeah. process of building a railroad. Yeah. So nearly two years went by after the Central Pacific started laying track to where the Union Pacific just got started. Right. Well, and not only that, but also he would basically, I was reading that he would essentially build, because you got paid per mile, an incredible rate per mile. Yes. Actually, let me just let me just fact check this with you really quickly. So from, from what I understand, it was roughly about a half a million dollars per mile on flat land up to $1.3 million. This is in today's dollars. It's I'm in sorry, today's, today's absolutely dollars. Absolutely, today's, today's dollars. dollars. It was 16000 yeah, yeah. a mile on flat land. Yeah. And thirty-two to forty-eight thousand dollars a mile in mountainous terrain. So that's like a, 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 a one point three million per mile over mountainous terrain. That's an incredible amount of money. Now I know there's a lot going into it as well, but uh, so so my point is, when when Durant was building this, he would essentially build oxbows and build like excessive track. So the the distance in two years, I think he only went like 40, 50 miles right. in two years when the Central Pacific had gone, you know, a hundred or something like that, or close to it, or something like that. They, Double, they were making a lot better progress, but they yeah. also had the Sierra Nevada immediately, right. and the Central and the Union Pacific was going down the Platte River Valley. And what you're right. referring to was the surveyors had staked out a straight line, and he put a lot of curves in to increase the right. mileage. Right. Um, so he was, he was amazing. Um, I, and I love this guy. Um, so let's talk about, so these are basically the major players in the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, and the Central Pacific is the next one. I want to take a step back, because the Civil War is actually very key to all of this, because the, the nuances between the North and the South pre-Civil War and how they use the railroads, talk to me a little bit about that. Well... California became a state in 1850, so mm. starting even a little before that, people clamored for a railroad to come to the Pacific mm. for a whole variety of reasons. One was California's gold. One was to facilitate tr trade with Asia, mm -hmm. and, and both of those were big, big deals. But the Congress could not agree on how to do this for several reasons. The most obvious one was sec sectionalism and factions related to slavery. Southern legislators would not allow a northern route to be built because that would give primacy over non-slave states. Mm -hmm. And the southern states were economically weak always. Mm -hmm. 
Northern legislators would not let a southern route be built because that could expand slavery westward into Texas and, mm. and what is now the Four Corners area of New Mexico and, and, and Arizona and perhaps Colorado and Utah, and, and as well as Southern California, because when California became a state, um, fun fact, there were slaves and mm. slaveholders in San Bernardino and Los Angeles counties. Hmm. I didn't know um, that. It's it's not well known, and it yeah. wasn't it wasn't quite legal, but it also wasn't quite illegal because right. the laws just weren't there. Yeah, cause it, yeah, 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 that makes sense. But if you'd built a railroad to that, and if you could use the railroad to enforce the Dred Scott decision, which mm. which covered the return of sla- escaped slaves, right, you could really strengthen the 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 terrible fact of slavery. Um, so the beginning of the Civil War, the the shots fired at Fort Sumter, had one really beneficial effect for our nation's history. They took the Southern legislatures out. Right. Secession did that. Secession did that. (laughs) Those guys left. And oddly enough, one of the first (laughs) orders of business is, hey, should we build a railroad? Okay, now we have a clear shot at this. Right. But even in the in the 1850s and leading up to this, there were seven different expeditions across the United States, including ones led by uh, uh, General John Fremont from the Army Corps of Engineers at looking at railroad routes. And so the, the ultimate... One of the ultimate decisions was, what route do we choose? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, all of those routes were built except one. Hmm. I didn't know that. Well, you know, it's funny because that's, you know, just to put a fine point on this, because I, I want to make sure people understand this. What was great about secession was that half of Congress left, so it's so much easier to pass things. Yep. If only that would happen in some situations, you know, <laughs> if only we could reduce the number of legislators. Uh, making stuff passed. Um, so, so we start building this this railroad, and we now we have a path to it. And there were a couple of there was a specific bill. I think it was in 1862 during the Civil War that allowed for the transcontinental railroad to be built. And this essentially, um, you can expound upon this if I'm not saying this correctly, but essentially, the U.S. government gave land and um, bonds for railroad companies to start building this railroad. Correct? Yes. It's the Pacific Railroad Act of 1862, and okay. I really wish that I had the National Forest map here with me because uh, the across the Sierra, the railroad crosses what is now the Tahoe National Forest, hmm. and the map shows it beautifully. It shows a checkerboard of land ownership, mm-hmm. and none of it belongs to the railroad anymore except the actual right-of-way, but the white squares in amongst the green, which is National Forest, were railroad grants, and they've all gone to different users over time. A lot of it's actually a company called Sierra Pacific Industries, which is a big timber company. Mm-hmm. But it originally was on 20 miles on either side of the right-of-way and then later on 40 miles on either side of the right-of-way. The intent of that really focused on the Great Plains because one of the promises of the railroad was that towns would be developed along the line. You had to have places to fuel and send telegrams and things like that. And farmers would be invited to those towns, and they recruited in Europe, which is why you see so many Scandinavians in the Dakotas and so many mm. Lutherans and, and, I'm sorry, um, uh, um, uh, other Scandinavians in Minnesota and Germans and mm-hmm. Italians in different places. Um, and so the idea of the checkerboard was that the railroads could then sell those lands to these farmers and, and raise revenue mm. that way that right. wouldn't come out of the treasury. Um, the bonds were a lot harder to sell. This is why Mr. Durant was always in Washington, D.C. or in New York City telling bonds. On the Central Pacific side, Collis Huntington was always back there trying to shill these things. And in many cases, they sold them at great discounts. In a lot of cases, they gave huge amounts of stock to legislators who would um, help them mm. in different ways. And and it, and it was just this amazing thing. But you, you, you made me remember this thing about the different... 
uh, pay rates for di- crossing mm-hmm. different lands, mm-hmm. we know that Mr. Durant lengthened the Union Pacific route to get more mileage to get more money. Here in California, there's a great there's a great story because just east of Sacramento, there are now um, suburbs, and one of the suburbs is called uh, Carmichael, and it's next to McCle- what was the former McClellan Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And there's a creek there called Arcade Creek. And as you mentioned, you got paid $16,000 a mile on flat land and a higher rate on mountainous land. So someone had to determine where the Sierra Nevada mountains began. Right, right. <laughs> and there was a going. state geologist named Josiah Whitney, and, oh. and he's the man that Mount Whitney is named for. He <laughs> is the person who famously belittled and made fun of John Muir who postulated the role of glaciers in the Sierra Nevada, particularly around Yosemite. Hmm. And, of course, we know that Muir was absolutely right, but right. he derided Muir as an ignorant sheep herder. <laughs> right. Some geologist here. Some geologist. Yeah. But they hired Whitney to find the base of the Sierra Nevada. So we went to Arcade Creek, which is really just outside of town. It's about 10 miles from where we sit right now. Right. And he said, you know what? The sediment on the east side of this creek is darker than the sediment on the west side. So this is the base of the Sierra Nevada. Wow. And he, and he signed a report as a state geologist that was sent to Washington and it was given to President Lincoln, who signed an amendment to the Pacific Railroad Act, saying right here that Sierra Nevada begins at Arcade Creek. Congressman Aaron Sargent was there for that signing ceremony, and he is famously known to have remarked, thus has Abraham's faith moved mountains. <laughs> That's clever. It is. It's really like clever, that. and it's a really great story, and we think yeah. it's true. Yeah. But if you think about the Sierra Nevada, who's to say where the base is? Because the whole Central Valley is filled with sediment that has eroded out of the Sierra Nevada over millions of years. Right. So I don't actually know where it starts. Right. I live in Auburn, and clearly it's mountainous there. Suddenly I go from 32 feet here in Sacramento to 1,100 feet at my house. Right. But where does that start? So if you go out along 80, even at Arcade Creek, there is actually a noticeable upgrade. It's not very perceptible unless you're looking carefully. Yeah. And then suddenly a little bit past the towns of Rockland and Loomis, you start seeing a little more obvious stuff. But who's to say where the base is? And the other thing that mitigates that is they had defined by law that the mountainous area would cover about 100 miles. Mm -hmm. So in a certain way, it was irrelevant which 100 miles it was. Right. They would would get paid that fixed amount. But for the railroad, what it did was it increased their income stream very quickly, which was was very helpful. Well, because if you go from flatland to mountainous, it's almost a million dollars more. It's almost three times as much. So it's amazing. Like, this is the kind of stuff that I love because, you know, politics is involved in literally everything. And, you know, three or four, you know, even if it's like 15 or 20 miles difference, that's millions of dollars extra that you would get for at the a, railroad. At a time when you really, really needed the money. Of course. As the railroad expands, you begin running trains. And, and you know, we're here in the state capitol recording this. The foundation stones of this building were the first revenue loads of the Central Pacific Railroad from hmm. quarries in Rockland. I know where the quarries are. Yeah, wow. And so... They started deriving income streams very quickly by hauling rock and taking people and stuff like that. And and as the railroad progressed up the hill, they could bring more things down. You start seeing fruit orchards being planted, but you also start seeing people traveling. Because what else is just over the Sierra Nevada starting in 1858? The Comstock load centered in Virginia City. Hmm. And that was a huge silver strike, the largest silver strike in our nation's history. And prior to the railroad, there was a very circuitous route called the Hennis Pass Road, which involved leaving the Virginia City area, going to where Reno is today, going up into the mountains and going north to the headwaters of the North Yuba River, Mm -hmm. down a very complicated North Yuba Canyon, south over the rivers, to about where Wheatland is, and then eventually make it to Sacramento. Wow. 
as the railroad's being built, Charlie Crocker, who's one of the principals of the Central Pacific, builds a wagon road called the Dutch Flat Donner Lake Wagon Road. And oddly enough, it went from Dutch Flat to Donner Lake, which right. is right on the railroad route. Right. That is the hypotenuse of a triangle to where the other two sides would be the Hennis Pass Road. Got it. So okay. it shortens the route. It makes it straighter. It makes it a lot safer, and it's a very high-quality road. And suddenly that captures all of the Comstock traffic. Mm-hmm. So all of the fine goods in the mansions in Virginia City went eastward on the road. All of the silver came westward on the road. Hmm. And it was an incredibly busy toll road. It made a lot of money, too, because it was a toll road. But it was so busy at one point. It only lasted for a couple of years as a toll road. But it was so busy in in its last year that only freight was hauled during the day, and only passengers were hauled at night. Wow, okay. And I like to think about this because I used to live up east of Dutch Flat. I used to live at 6,000 feet. And I and I and parts of that road are very familiar to me. And I think, what would it be like to be on a stagecoach that leaves Dutch Flat or Alta or Cisco, three towns along the route, at sunset when there's maybe a quarter moon and heads over that? Now, the horses know where they're going. Mm-hmm. The teamster knows what he's doing. But there's no headlights. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what an e-ticket ride that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. But it was a very high-standard, high-quality road and really well-known. Parts of it later, by the way, became the first automobile road across the United States called the Lincoln Highway. Huh. And some of it you can actually still drive today. That That is incredible. And you mentioned Donner Lake um, did a previous episode on the Donner Party. So that's mm-hmm. right around that area where all that happened, it's right? The, it's the same body it's of water. Same body of water. Um, so it's, it's all connected, except obviously uh, a couple decades earlier. Um, so let's talk about the Central Pacific. We haven't gotten to them. We got Thomas Durant is such, uh, you know, he's already stealing the show early on um, for the Union Pacific. But the Central Pacific had some pretty cool cast of characters. The Big Four. Um, who's running mm-hmm. this thing? Well, Leland Stanford was the president of Stanford uh, University. Of Stanford University, also California's seventh governor and also a U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was he was a merchant. He was he was a trader, and he and his brothers had had warehouses and trading things all up and down the West Coast, even into South America at one time. So is that why he got into it, essentially, is to to expand that business? I mean, because that helps. The railroads help with well, all that. Well, he, he was a big fish in a rather small pond. He was a very well-to-do merchant in a rather small city. So he wouldn't be the same as, oh, Vanderbilt or mm. Rockefeller or somebody back okay. He's not on the same scale. But he, but he was well-known, very ambitious. And he knew early on, he came west during the gold rush, opened a little store in a little gold rush town called Michigan Bluff, and early on learned that if you want to make money in the gold rush, you sell supplies to miners. Right. You don't work as hard, and it's a guaranteed income. Right, yeah, yeah. And he knew he knew uh, Charlie Crocker, who ran a hardware store. Um, he knew... Um, 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 that's not the Char- that's not the Charlie Crocker from... Uh, isn't there, wasn't there a Charlie Crocker in Deadwood that was um, part of... I, Different Crocker? I don't know. There's a lot of Crockers. And if you ever remember the Crocker Bank and, yeah. and some other Crockers, they all have an interrelationship that is sometimes kind of tenuous. Okay. Uh, as far as Deadwood is, I just don't know. I, I, I have to look into that. I think there's a Charlie. I may be, I may be misp- misspeaking, but I thought there was a Charlie Crocker but there. But there were a lot of Crockers involved in finance in, okay. during that time. But Crocker's involved and um, Collis Huntington... Is that the same uh, Huntington who ended up building the Huntington uh, railroads down here in the Huntington Beach? Indeed. Down in uh, Southern California. And the resorts at Del Monte and down in San Diego and and things like that. And and they run into this man named Theodore Judah. 
And Judah was a railroad engineer from upper New York State who was brought out west, specifically here to Sacramento, to build the first railroad in the state called the, the um, Sacramento Valley Railroad. And it ran from Sacramento to Folsom. Mm-hmm. People that live here in Sacramento today know that, that the light rail line running to Folsom is basically on that route. And it was a short-line railroad that ran to a gold center. Folsom was a place where a lot of hydraulic, uh, not hydraulic, but dredge mining was done. But he got out here and he got obsessed with the idea of building a railroad back east. And he began his own independent surveys into the mountains. He went up in the mountains all year round on different routes and, and, and looked at different things. His, his wife, Anna, was very supportive. And sometimes she went with him and she made these beautiful watercolors. She pressed flowers and plant samples, many of which have been preserved today. And he was obsessed with this, so much so that people seeing him as the street would sometimes cross to the other side because crazy Judah could talk about nothing but railroads. <laughs> I don't think he would have been a really good dinner guest unless that's all you wanted to talk about. Right, yeah. But he, he went all over the place and he went to San Francisco and tried to get people interested and no biters and he, he went everywhere. He went to D.C. And, and proselytized for this. Eventually, he caught their ear of, of the associates here. And... Um, but he had also, in one of his forays, was in the town of Dutch Flat, which is near Interstate 80 today. It's it's in Placer County. And he ran into a man named Doc Strong. Doc was the druggist of the town. And Strong knew of Judah's passion. And he said, you know what? I think I, I, think I got something for you. They took a ride up into the woods, and they found this double summit going up to Immigrant Gap, where there's kind of a peak and then a little dip to Yuba Gap. And then the next rise is up to the crest of the Sierra. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of remarkable in the Sierra. There are actually several places where there's double summits, but the dip between them is always way, way down mm-hmm. like a river canyon. Right. In this case, it's kind of minor. And that's really important for railroads because it lets you build at a 2% grade. You can't exceed 2%. Okay. Just to rule, you just can't do it. But the And everybody talks in the books and the histories that this was a genius thing. Judah discovered this great genius thing. Guess what? This was actually the immigrant trail. Hmm. He deviated from it to make that 2% grade, but right. the route they took far and, far and away parallels the immigrant trail that so many people took in the late 1840s and into the mid-1850s. So it wasn't exactly unknown, but he found a way to make it a 2% grade. And that was the key. And that was the key. And so he went to, to, to these guys, and he got money to do a proper survey. He hired survey crews. He bought groceries. He bought all the tools. And they went up, and they staked this out. And he made this huge map of it. And then they paid him to go to Washington, D.C. to lobby. And I don't quite understand the politics of this and the propriety of this, but sympathetic members of Congress actually gave him an office in the Capitol. Hmm. Wow, okay. And he, and he named it the Pacific Railroad Museum, and he had this huge vellum map that, that is like 35 feet long. It still exists in our state archives today. And he unrolled it in there. His wife, Anna, had her watercolors and pressed plant uh, species and pressed flowers. And it was up in there for six months, and he lobbied, and he talked to President Lincoln, and he, and he button, buttonholed everybody he could. And as a result, they passed the Pacific Railroad Act. Wow. This so it's a big deal. Yeah, the, it is a big deal because that's what sets off this whole race to build the. Tra- yeah, so so they charter the the Union Pacific from the from the east, building from Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is basically Omaha, the Central Pacific from the west. It's a little different organizational structure because the Central Pacific had been chartered by individuals. It was a private corporation. The Union Pacific was actually chartered by the U.S. government, mm. and it wasn't a government thing, but it was chartered by the government. So a little little bit different financially. Right. But off they run. 
And, and this, so it's called the Transcontinental Railroad, but they're actually starting from Iowa to Sacramento, Right. What it did east of Omaha was connect with existing lines. Okay, right. And, and Judah, and, and many people at the time, always referred to it as the Pacific Railroad. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Because essentially, essentially what it amounted to was you could go from the east coast to the west coast, whatever line you wanted to take yes. until you got to... And instead of a four-month journey, it was 10 days, and right. then eight days, and then six days. Right, right, <laughs> right. And, and that's, a, that, that's also a huge deal, because when you came west to find gold in the days of 49, chances are you were never coming back. Mm-hmm. It took you four months to get here at the risk of life and limb. Right. As we've talked about in previous episodes, some people didn't make it. Some people, you know... Very, very true. Yeah. And so suddenly, when this thing is completed, not only can you go back... Yeah. You could actually telegraph your family, because that right. came along too, right. and say, here's tickets waiting for you. Come on out. I'll see you in 10 days. Right. And that's, I mean, wow. that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. You, you begin to see financial implications of this too that lead well into the, 21st century, into the 20th century. Companies on the West Coast sometimes used Eastern banks if they had cash flow problems, mm. and they would write checks on Eastern banks, issue them out West, and the money would float while the while the check had to be physically taken back east <laughs> right, on right, the train. Right. So this goes well into the 20th century for some business practices. It was sort of a normal, accepted way of doing things. The Internet has killed that, unfortunately, for financial oh, institutions. Yeah. But Completely. railroads and transportation are central to so many things in our lives that we don't necessarily think about. It's just amazing. Well, you know, it's so down in Long Beach, I live in L.A., and it's interesting because I've seen the big tank, you know, the big cargo trucks come in. And those cargo boxes, essentially, those get shipped onto trains and go out into the world. That's kind of, you know, it seems so obvious when you think about it. But when you're watching them come in and get unloaded, then you realize those are all getting put onto trains to go out into the country. That's transportation. And And this infrastructure was built, you know, in 1800s. Well, another fun fact, that technology that is now about 35 years old was invented here in Sacramento. Which technology? Of, of those cargo containers on, on rails. Huh, okay. The, they're, they're called modular containers. They take a big crane, they lift them up. Yeah, There's yeah. a little framework that has rail wheels on it. Yeah. And that was invented here in Sacramento, and the California State Railroad Museum doesn't have it on display. But the prototype, the patent prototype for those devices is in the collection of that museum. Oh, that's amazing. And someday you will be able to see it in the technology museum that's being built. Yeah. That's that's incredible. But it was in, it was invented here and that was the last big technological advance of the Southern Pacific Railroad. Okay. I mean it is I mean it's a huge advancement. I mean it, it's yeah. weird when you see it all kind of happen because in it also they also fit on ships. Right. So so yeah. now you see ships that are designed for those containers. You right. see trucks that are designed to haul those containers. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. It's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah, cuz that's the other step is that like you can fit on trucks and you can I mean it goes from one to one to one. There's not like unloading, offloading. Well, and it's... when they're worn out, you can live in them. Right. <laughs> you start you're starting to see people yeah. build houses out of them. There's a few here in Sacramento. Yeah, I've seen those. Those are crazy. Um, so, so the the first lines get built. The Central Pacific lays the first track. If I'm understanding this correctly, for the Transcontinental Railroad, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't those laid right by where the Railroad Museum is now? Yes, that's one of the fortuitous things about having it there is the first rails were laid at Front and K Street. Wow. And there there is today a monument there, and there's still tracks there. The, the Railroad Museum's Excursion Railroad, the Sa- Sacramento Southern, mm-hmm. rides on that roadbed. But, in, and, you know, we, we will tend to think of the beginning of something like that as a groundbreaking. In the case of this, it was actually a ground-raising. Hmm. The, it runs right along the, the, the shore of the Sacramento River, 
and Sacramento is a very flood-prone community. When Leland Stanford was sworn in as governor, he rode to the Capitol in a boat from his mansion because it was January and the city was flooded. Wow. So part of the reason the railroad is there is the city gave them the franchise for that, provided that they build the railroad bed high enough to serve as a levy. Hmm. So on January 9th, 1863, when they have that ceremony, Leland Stanford doesn't dig a hole. He actually has a wagon nearby, and he takes a couple of shovelfuls of dirt and throws them out on the ground to begin the raising that. Wow. <laughs> Sacramento's a weird town. A lot yeah. of the streets uh, running east-west until about the state capitol were actually raised during the 1860s. Huh. They built brick walls on either side at the curb line. Yeah. And in some cases, they're 14 feet high. And then the city came in and filled those. And hmm. you as a building owner were required to either make your first floor into a basement, raise your building, or do something. And you had to build your own sidewalks, by the way, too. Wow. And so Sacramento's elevation today is different than it, than it was in the 1850s. Oh, it's so bizarre. Yes, it really is. Seattle is that way, too, a little bit. But right. uh, Sacramento is that way. And, and the, the city museum here actually offers underground Sacramento tours to show you some of the evidence. Of that. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. It would be a great podcast, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I was like, that's cool. Because there's also, I think there's, there, there's underground tunnels in, in Los Angeles as well. Like, the, there's a whole network of underground tunnels right. under the city. Right. It's just cool to think about, you know. Plus, I'm a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, and they always lived in the sewers running around the town, <laughs> which I always loved that concept, you know, these underground tunnels and secret stuff. Uh, the other cool thing about these, so these two companies are, are they're starting to furiously build this railroad, and I don't know if this, you know, they they kind of made this a point in Hell on Wheels, uh, but I think there's a little bit of historical evidence for this, and I think you'd be the guy to know. Each side kind of hired very specific people to work for them. Um, so the Union Pacific, from what I understand, they kind of hired former soldiers, former Confederate and Union soldiers. Um, lots of freed slaves. This is after World War II. Um, and lots of... After the I, Civil War. I'm sorry. I'm Jeez. Before, before World War II. Significantly before World War II, <laughs> but right after the Civil War. Thanks for that correction. Uh, they, they were hiring freed slaves and a lot of Irish immigrants. So these guys are working on the Union Pacific. Right. And I believe the Central... And then the Mormons were involved in that as well. As, as they got into the Utah Territory, Mormons right. were hired by both companies. Okay, they were... By, by, okay, I wasn't sure if they were by both. Because Brigham Young had a, had a stake in the Union Pacific. Right, and and he had a vested interest. He wanted the railroad to come to Salt Lake. Right. It, notably, it didn't. Right. <laughs> that it didn't go there. No, it, it it comes into Ogden, which is about forty five miles north of Salt Lake City. Oh wow, that's crazy. Uh, there was a little bit of rancor and discord over that. I would imagine <laughs> so, because he gave lots of Mormon workers to both sides of the railroad. Yes. Lots of workers there. And and the railroads also never paid him completely. And I think the the resolution of that was to give them rail to build a spur line down to Salt Lake. Hmm. So why did they both, uh, why did they, I guess, I don't know if screw them over is the right word, but what, how come they didn't go through Salt Lake City? Just um, not easy? Was that not where the route was going? The, they... the, if, you, if you think about the geography, the, the line goes north of the Great Salt Lake. Uh-huh. And Salt Lake City is on the eastern shore, not at the south end, but closer to the south end than the north, than the north end. Uh-huh. From, from, and then t- east of, East of the Salt Lake itself are the Uinta Mountains, and the pass they had to use to cross the Uintas is close to the north end. So going down to Salt Lake City would have made a big diversion from their route that they needed to use. It would have put in a big U or required more extensive engineering to get across the... I'm sorry, not the Uinta Mountains. I beg your pardon, the Wasatch Mountains. Okay. Well, Thomas Durant seems like the guy who would love to put a little extra... Electric loop down there. I'm surprised yeah, he didn't want to. Um, 
there's I'm sure there's more detail to that than yeah. than I know. That's one thing I'm just not as well versed in no, that's as, as okay. some people would be. Well, and so you make a good point about towns. I want to come back to that. But also the Central Pacific, from what I understand, hired lots of Chinese immigrants. Right, and that was out of escaping. necessity. Right. Well, because there was a there was a, also a civil war going on in China, so there were lots of immigrants coming here. There there had been lots of lots of unrest and a lot of famine and poverty in the Pearl River Delta, which is almost where, where almost all these Chinese came from. Right. Which is which is near Macau and Hong Kong and Guangzhou. Yeah. Um, and, but but it's not like they wanted Chinese. In fact, when Stanford ran for governor. He campaigned on a virulent anti-Chinese platform. The Chinese mm. were the dregs of the earth and subhuman. Wow. And it's interesting because California's second governor had made speeches praising the industriousness and the worth and the and the virtue of having our Chinese friends. But what changed in just those few years yeah. was the Chinese came in and they went into mine claims that white people had abandoned. Uh-huh. And they managed to get gold out of the waste piles, the tailings of what white miners had abandoned. Yeah. Because generally... They're more meticulous and more methodical than white guys who always wanted right. everything fast and, and right. quick. Right. So it, it ticked off a lot of the, the white people, and you started to see all these prejudices come up. So you suddenly have laws of Chinese can't have mining claims and foreign miners' taxes that are yeah. really hard on the Chinese and, and all of this isolation. So they're building a railroad. A lot of white males have actually enrolled in the California Battalion. They are off fighting the Civil War. Uh-huh. But also you have people living their lives out here, and you have the Comstock load, which I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, whites would hire on to build the railroad. They would be taken to the end of track and work for a day or two to feel good about themselves. And they'd say, hey, thanks, but we're headed off to Nevada. And they would head up the Dutch oh. Flat Road to make their fortunes. It's like a free, they're just like stowaways. It wasn't that life was grand over there. Life was really horrible, but the strike was well-known and really productive. Yeah, wow. And and in this case of the Central Pacific, they ran out of money at least a couple of times, and who knows when they were going to get paid, and, yeah. and on and on and on. So they got stuck near the town of Auburn. Auburn had a large Chinese population, and, and I've seen the census for 1852, and in 1852 there were 10,000 people in that city. Mm-hmm. 3,300 of them were Chinese. Wow. So it was a big Chinese population yeah. in Auburn. It's a third. It was in 1850. I'm not, mm-hmm. still not sure about 1864, but there were significant numbers of Chinese all throughout the mother load, and they were underemployed and really looking for something to do. So they... The, the, the associates, Stanford and Crocker and Huntington and Hopkins, thought, what are we going to do? Crocker initially refused to hire any Chinese when it was brought to him by a man named Strobridge, who was a construction boss. And Strobridge is thought to have said, well, you know, wait a minute. I know they're small, but they built the Great Wall of China. They can mm-hmm. do this. So they took a few on as an experiment. We yeah. still don't know exactly when they came on, and I'm actually studying that right now because uh-huh. I live in Auburn pretty close to a place that's kind of famous in this story called Bloomer Cut, which was the first engineering challenge of the railroad. Mm-hmm. And that's before you get to Auburn, but there's some indication that they hired Chinese to work on that. And if so, that's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they hire Chinese there. Suddenly they get very impressed with how industrious they are. They pay them a little less than white people. And the white guys, they supply food and board to. The Chinese have to supply their own, but they aren't they aren't griping about it because it's in in if you're a, a Chinese person during those days, it's a little better off than you were, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. marginally respectable compared to a lot of things. It's discriminatory, but it's oddly 
equitable compared to other discrimination at the time. So right. the discrimination is a, when you look at history, it's a spectrum. So in, of course, it's you know it's discrimination. It, it however, is a spectrum. <laughs> right. and and even though they start, even though they they are you know convinced that these small people can't do anything, they speak a weird language, they wear funny clothes, they eat this weird weird food, and they smoke opium. They get so impressed with the work they're doing, suddenly they start recruiting. And first they start recruiting into San Francisco Bay Area and up mm. and down California. And then they're recruiting into China. And there are ultimately several labor companies that they contract with, both oh, wow. Chinese-operated and one called uh, Wallace Sisson and & Company. And, uh, and, and so the, the payroll records are really odd in this sense. And I, I work with some groups studying mm. the Chinese history of this. And we don't know the name of any railroad workers because the payroll records don't show any workers. They show that they paid money to the Sisson Wallace Company oh. or to the Ah Toy Company or to the Ah Seng Company. Right. And you can infer that they hired this many workers, mm -hmm. but you don't know who any of them are. There, We do know that there was correspondence between workers and their families back in China and money sent back and forth. No one has found any of the correspondence, though. So, mm. so most of what we know is in oral histories and family traditions, as well as archaeological evidence. So if you know where you're looking, and no, I'm not going to tell you, mm -hmm. you can find sites where Chinese were camped at different places on the railroad, mm. and you can find evidence of how they lived. So you can... Uh, there are fragments of rice bowls, for instance, and fragments of pottery, which is unique to this, called brownware. It's a particular kind of clay and glaze that exists only in China. It was used to haul liquid items like soy sauce and rice mm. wine and vinegar and things over. And and I've even I even found once a Chinese coin at a mm. habitation site, which oh, just wow. blows my mind. Wow. And so you can you can learn things about how these people lived. You can read newspaper accounts where they where they write about them as as spectators, you know, and they constantly refer to John Chinaman or Celestials, mm -hmm. and they it's it's hyperbole in a lot of cases because newspapers like Helen Wheels is written for the audience, not necessarily to be a factual account. Right. So, but you but you learn and infer these things, and and and. We've heard estimates of up to ten thousand Chinese working on the line at any one time. They quickly became probably 85% of the Central Pacific workforce wow. to where the others were the engineers and the surveyors and the very skilled people. But the Chinese were track layers. They were road builders. They were graders. They were tunnelmen. They, were, they handled explosives. They were quarrymen who built the many, many stone walls that supported the, the, the fills mm -hmm. for the railroad. They built trestles. They were sometimes carpenters, although not usually the skilled carpenters. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this progress just explodes to where they're making much more progress. There were, very few people know this because the railroad was completed from 1863 to 1869, about six years. Mm -hmm. There was actually a 10-year window in the Pacific Railroad Act because the best guess was it would be mm. about 10 years. So suddenly this is going very, very quickly. Right. It was very slow going up the Sierra because they were stopped, stopped by about 12 tunnels. Tunnel 6, the one right at Donner Summit, took over two years to, to complete. Mm -hmm. But after that, they just explode across the desert. And, and, and the, the railroad management really was, in their own way, with the prejudice of the time, effusive and sort of public about their praise for the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Except that at Promontory during the ceremony, you don't see any photographs that officially show Chinese in them. There's a few photographs that may show some Chinese. It's hard to tell. Right. But none of them are in the posed photographs. Uh. Even though Chinese were explicitly given the honor of laying the last rail huh. by Governor Stanford. Wow. 
and even though Chinese were certainly there, and, and in the Railroad Museum, there is a famous painting called The Last Spike by Thomas Hill, commissioned by Governor Stanford. It took about 10 years to paint, partly because it shows everybody in there. It's, a, it's an allegorical painting, so even Theodore Judah, who died in 1863, is mm-hmm. in there. <laughs> but it took 10 years to paint because as Stanford made and lost friends due to his political alliances, yeah. he had people painted in and out of the painting. <laughs> but it's significant that in this painting, commissioned yeah. by a man who was virulently publicly anti-Chinese, right. he chose to put Chinese workers front and center, uh-huh. laying the last rail, they are clearly subordinate to him. They are kneeling in front of him, and they are bowed, and they are submissive to him. Yeah. But they are Chinese yeah. in the middle of this painting that celebrates his greatest achievement. Huh. That's a significant thing. Yeah. That's a big, big deal. Yeah. Well, um, to, to take a guy like that and, and you know, <laughs> let me, if, he, if he chooses to have that in there, you know, it's saying a lot. But, but it's, it's also weird how pervasive this generation is because you just made me realize I've, I've talked to Chinese people who were invited to Promontory in 1969 for the 100th anniversary. Uh-huh. They were excluded from making remarks at this ceremony. Huh. Wow. They were on the program and they were pushed off at the last minute by, I think, the head of the National Park Service in 1969. Wow. Yeah. That's strange. Isn't that something? Yeah, that is really weird. Well, it's weird that they were more progressive in 1869 because they got to lay the last track. But, you know, in, in comparison, it's almost it's less tolerant. It's, it's part of, I think, what makes this story so fascinating is there's all of these weird twists and turns. Yeah. Which is one reason why I'm glad they did a show like Hell on Wheels because it's an endless source of... of really great story material. No, it absolutely is. I mean, and, and you know, one other thing I want to mention really quickly before we finish is that when you look at some of the major cities throughout the country, every major city had a reason why it became a major city, um, you know, from Pittsburgh Steel to Detroit automaking. Um, a lot of the ones in the Midwest, like Omaha, were rail hubs. And so, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't as important now, so these cities don't have the prominence they once had 100 years ago, but that's how some of these things became major cities is because they were big railroad hubs, well, which is important. E- even here in California, Bakersfield was a rail hub mm. because it's at the foot of the Tehachapi grade, which is yeah. the other pass that leaves the Central Valley over the Sierra Nevada. Wow, and that's a perfect example. Bakersfield, that's a perfect example and of a town. a couple of my favorite towns along the line in the Central Valley have a big railroad connection, Atwater. Hmm. is a place that was at water because there were artesian wells. And Kalinga is coaling station A. Hmm. Oh, I like that. That's okay. that's the railroad connection to those things, and it just perv- these things pervade per- are so pervasive in our daily lives. Yeah. They are hidden. We don't know them, but they really do affect how we live our lives today. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the story ends with the golden spike, the last spike, which we then call the golden spike. Mm-hmm. And it's a golden spike hit with a silver hammer coming back to that Nevada gold. I don't know if it's the Nevada, California silver gold thing, but it's kind of cool that it's right in that area. There, there was actually a gold spike, a bronze spike, a gold mix spike, a silver spike, and oh, wow. one more spike. But... You talk about the hammer and hitting the spike, and they were supposed that was the hammer and the spike were wired to telegraph wires, and when they hit, they were supposed to tap out a Dunn sign. Yeah, both Stanford and Durant missed the spike, <laughs> and so it was an alert telegrapher who actually shorted the line to tap out the Dunn signal. Wow, jeez, maybe if they'd spent more time on the line with the common man, with the regular workers, they'd be able to hit a spike I'm with a hammer. I'm thinking they had a little bit of champagne. Th- as well. It's possible, but they're not a common man. They're not, they don't know how to hit a spike. 
These people are un- out of touch is what I'm saying to you, <laughs> Phil. Uh, so how can people learn more about... Oh, really quick before we finish, the Golden Spike is actually at the Railroad Museum, right? One of them. We, ha- we have a spike that was the... The Railroad Museum has a spike that is the backup spike. It never went to promontory, right, but it was okay. made at the same time just in case. Okay. The actual spike that Stanford missed... <laughs> that, what and went Durant into missed, the ground, yeah. ...is at Stanford University, okay. and it's in, it's in the museum there. The other spikes, some are thought to have been lost in the great San Francisco earthquake and fire, uh-huh. and some are thought to have survived, and our historian has actually uh, got his eyes on a spike that is reputed to be one of them, and he's trying to see if that might actually be true hmm. and if it actually might be available for collection. Well, they didn't leave it in the ground. I mean, I'm No, sure certainly probably... not. <laughs> right. Even the tie yeah. didn't, didn't stay because everyone carved it up with their pocket knives sure. to get souvenirs. Of course. And it, it was replaced many times. And I'm told that by the Park Service that even today they have to regularly replace the, re- oh, no the, kidding. the replica there because people keep whittling into it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, man. Um, so how can people how can people get in touch with you? Um, are you on social media? Because you, you're, you're, you're a knowledgeable store and you do this. You still do this. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Well, I, I do have a Twitter account. It's at Phil underscore Sexton. And you can certainly uh, message me there. Uh, I do have a website that's called philsexton.com. And I need to revamp it very extensively. I've sort of left it fallow for a while. Um, but really, you know, the best places to learn about this history is, is not me. I know a lot of things, but I'm mm-hmm. certainly not the oracle of the world. Uh-huh. The California State Railroad Museum is a very, very fine museum that people from all over the world come to visit. And it, it has the very first locomotive delivered to the Central Pacific. We, the, the site has the groundbreaking site of the Central Pacific Railroad. It has things that you will not see anywhere else in the face of the earth. Golden Spike National Monument at Promontory, Utah, is the place where the rails were joined. And every day they bring two replica locomotives out mm-hmm. and they reenact that. And if you would go there on May 10th of 2019, you probably won't get in because it will oh. be sold out. It'll be a 150 huge year, right? 150th event. Um, there are several documentaries that are either airing next year or already airing on PBS and other stations. And there are, and there are lots of railroad museums around. And there are lots of websites um, there's a lot of bad information on some websites, but there are several good episodes of the PBS program American Experience on the Transcontinental Railroad that are available for streaming, and they're mm-hmm. quite good. Hell on Wheels is really good for looking at the flavor of the railroad, but mm-hmm. as far as being factual, I wouldn't write a book report. It's not a that. documentary. It's not a documentary, but boy, it sure is fun. It's a great, it's a great show. Um, I highly recommend it. And, and, and thing, even things like Union Pacific and The Iron Horse, classic films, give you some of that flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe the best thing to do is simply get on a train. The California sure. Zephyr runs from Emeryville or Oakland, California, all the way to Chicago, and it goes over the Sierra Nevada. Hmm. And between Sacramento and Reno, docents from the California State Railroad Museum will get on board, and they narrate the trip, and they're pretty knowledgeable for the Oh, that's part. amazing. And, they, and they're happy to answer questions as well. Yeah. So you think. They may not be that happy to well, answer questions. Well, I've trained some of them, so they yeah. better be able to answer questions. Right. Be happy to and being able to are two very different things. No, they're, they're pretty happy people. Are they? The okay, part, yeah. good, good, good. They get fed by the railroad. Oh, you better. If I'm sending my audience there, they better be happy to answer questions. Yeah. If they're not, I'm come back to you. Um, <laughs> all right, Phil, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's my, it's my real pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. 
The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to explore the entire online world that is Fascinating Nouns. On the page, you'll find new information about the guests, listen to previous episodes, and you can follow the show on social media. If you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, Instagram, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, which is Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, which is at FGGBT. That's FGGBT.com. You can learn all about fictional pop culture technology that a team of experts and I break down and tell you how to make it into real life. We talk about the T-1000, the everlasting gobstopper, Frankenstein's monster, FGGBT.com. It's amazing. If you like that show, you'll love all the other things that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to check it out there. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.